0: Hey Melissa. Hey Jamie. How's it going? Good. I'm in LA with you. I know and it's like it's kind of funny for me to even ask you how's it going because I kind of already know how it's going because you've been at my house for two days, <laughs>
1: which felt like my house. So uh going to your house and being in your kitchen I intuitively open up the trash where I would have the trash right. I open up the the cabinet. Immediately, where I would keep the cups, and you have the cups there. Yeah. You know how you go to somebody's house yeah. and they have everything in the wrong
0: place? <laughs> oh, no, there is a wrong place. I mean, we all know that, like, when you set up your house, I mean, men don't know this, but women know, like, the forks go somewhere, the junk drawer goes another place. Like, it's all there's. This, there's a specific place where it should all go. There's a work triangle. Oh my God, so smart. And I love that you said that because you're right. It's like the sink, the range, and the fridge have to form like the triangle, the work triangle. The only thing that I get confused is should the dishwasher be on the right side of the sink or the left side? Oh, the honey, the, the left, but I'm right-handed. And so like, I'm a right-handed person who like, if I were to write a skateboard, which I don't know how, um, I would put my right foot on it and push with my left. If If I'm right-handed, which I am, it feels weird to me to turn to my right to put dishes. I would rather turn to my left. I don't know why. But what about you? So my dishwasher is on the left. You might but, too. um
1: I did a remodel on my house. It's yeah. a 1975 A-frame, and the kitchen was 70s. Um, I had to use all the same plumbing. I couldn't move it around because it was what it was. Like it would have cost a lot so you of couldn't, money. Like, move
0: the sink, no or anything.
1: So I had to work with the the footprint of the kitchen. Yeah. And so weird that we have the same things. You have the same range. That I have yeah. uh, your fridge
0: is very like how you have your fridge or the handles mm-hmm. that we talked about uh, are the same the countertops like I don't know we just have a lot of the same taste so I'm glad you feel comfortable we love having you at my house and um, I hope that you absolutely love that my 100 pound German Shepherd uh, wants to sleep with you every night <laughs> he literally forces his way into your bedroom and you're like uh shadow scoot scoot <laughs> dude well, it's appropriate name shadow because you've He's follows. your shadow. Yeah. He's, he's my shadow. Yeah. He stalks you. But yeah, my dogs are really excited that you're there. They're actually trying to abandon me to go to you, which is making me a little bit jealous, but I know it'll all just be temporary.
1: <laughs> well, your dog tried to French kiss me. Yeah. You can have your dog
0: back. <laughs> he <went> 100% <laughs> literally jumped on your head and tried to French kiss you, which was amazing. Um, but I love having you at my house. We're getting a lot done. You just told me the great news that you're actually coming back next week, so we're going to get even more done. I love having you here in LA, but we came to the studio today to tackle a very complex and long-standing serial murder case that is all over the news. And although Lipstick and Lies, as the name implies, is a female-centric show, it is it covers Cases that cater to our fascination with female perpetrators, whether it's, you know, female killers, con artists, you know, all of the above. But what's unique that I think the listeners are going to find out toward the end of this episode um, is that, Melissa, you have a unique connection to the Gilgo Beach murder's case uh, that came about fairly recently. And I really want to talk about that. And it's for very good reason, but you've got some insight that nobody else has. And given your background, which I know you've talked about at nauseum, but um, given your background, you already had somewhat of a connection to the case in that sense. But now you have a true connection because we'll talk about that toward the end well, of the episode. But July 13th was...
1: On Friday, July 13th, my phone was blowing up. It was the arrest of Rex Huberman, and he is the alleged Long Island serial killer. And it was revealed that he had a wife and two adult children. So my phone was just going crazy. People were texting me saying, have you heard the news? They caught the alleged Long Island serial killer, and he has a family, um, and to me, it instantly brought back memories of 1995 when my father was arrested, and the detectives came to our home and interrogated my mother and myself. Um, I mean, interrogated my mother, and it was a it was just a refresher of almost you know well, how many years ago was that? A lifetime ago. Um, it just brought it all back. And then I thought, um, well, then I started seeing the tabloids and the press and the media swarming this poor family. And you see the images of Asa, the estranged wife of uh, Rex, just downbeaten. And I felt like I was a voyeur to watching
0: the media kick a woman while she's down. Yeah. A- and And for those of you who may not know the melissa talks about her father's arrest back in 1995 um he had unbeknownst to you and your family he had been living a double life and was in fact a serial killer and was finally arrested in 1995 it absolutely blew your world up it, yeah, came it was as 16, a complete shock 16 years old um i
1: absolutely had no idea about his double life i mean i'll be able to you know over time, I'll tell you some some stories that are you know the red flags that I missed, but um right now, what what I want to speak about and what I'm so glad that we have this forum, it gives I feel really empowered right now mm-hmm. to have a voice, to have a platform, to have a voice um but going back to watching the news unfold of Asa and the adult children, Victoria and Christopher it just brought it all back to me. And it also reminded me why I'm so vocal. And I want the, I wanted the family to know that they're not alone because I felt so alone as a teenager thinking I'm the only person in the entire world that is going through this or has ever gone through this. And that adds to the trauma and the pain. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be, I wanted to be helpful. So, um, one of the things that over the next couple of days so after july 13th the news broke then you're seeing this dilapidated house and this this woman you know just totally looked frayed and broken from the devastation sitting on the porch. They then uh, go into the home for I think 12 or 14 days. It's a long period. It was a long um, time that the feds were there and the authorities were there to collect evidence out of the home. And they were displaced. The family was displaced. And during that time period, I had a private conversation with my husband, uh, Steve. Who you are married to, Steve, by the way. So we're both married to Steve. So (laughs) I'm going to call. Does my husband get the honor of Steve one? Who's older?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm older than you, but that doesn't mean my husband's. My husband was born in April 1978.
1: Okay. Mine was born 1978 as well. So it went what month? June. Oh, mine's older. Okay. So Steve's two. I guess it's Steve Two. So two. Older. All right. My husband, Steve Two. Shit.
0: I had a I'm sorry, Steve Two. We
1: still love you. Two. Wait, they say first the worst, second the best. So Okay. Yeah. All right. I'll take it. Um, so Steve number two. Not
0: he, wait, that sounds like now- <laughs>
1: Steve likes to take number twos. Wait, that's my husband. <laughs> okay. Steve, my husband. There you mom, go. That's, that's all you husband, have to say. We, we had a private conversation. And I said to my husband, I want to do something. Yeah. But you know, if I come forward, it's going to bring everything up. If I start speaking up, it'll it could bring the good and the bad and the ugly mm-hmm. back to us. People are going to say things. It's going to be a repeat of round one. Mm-hmm. Of 1995 when my father was arrested. And mind you, obviously, I've been vocal and public. I've had the show Monster in My Family on Lifetime. Um, I did the podcast Happy Face and Happy Face Presents Two-Face. Like, I haven't… You've told this story. Mm -hmm. You've been very
0: public about your story.
1: Yeah. But it's another thing to be public with your story on a breaking case Mm -hmm. where everybody has a microscope on this family. Mm -hmm because they're going to be speculating. And so it's a different situation in that regards. Yeah. My with my dad, it's adjudicated. It's over. He was found guilty. They're still in the beginning phases of of you know, they just charged Rex Hewerman. Yeah.
0: Um anyway, so So it's like where you were back in 1995 and I know that you spoke with your husband Steve and your kids and they gave you their blessing they did. to go forward and get involved and and help.
1: Yeah. So that was the first hurdle. Like just, I wanted their blessing. The second hurdle is I wanted Asa's blessing mm-hmm. because who wants to be a charity case? Who wants somebody to give unsolicited help? Yeah. And um, so I posted a TikTok video saying, Hey, why don't we start a GoFundMe for Asa? And the reason why I go fund me is because I could tell that, she was financially destitute.
0: Mind you, that's not what the public thought.
1: The yeah, public course, heard... She was an
0: architect and a business owner.
1: Yeah, that's what they heard. And that they had multiple houses. But what the public, I felt, was missing is that she filed for a divorce immediately and anybody who's been through a divorce knows that there's a financial restraining order that happens. You cannot
0: sell your assets mm-hmm. in the middle of a divorce. You can't liquidate anything. No, but when the feds are involved. Oh, it's another level. There's a freeze on assets and so if she did have any assets or control of any of those assets prior to the feds coming in, she now doesn't.
1: What I think we should do in a later episode is how to divorce a serial killer episode because yes, I think it needs to be explained on the complexities of what happened when you're divorcing
0: somebody who's in prison and they're under investigation because it's, it's very not different the same. than just the standard divorce yeah. that you and I have gotten Yeah, <laughs> before. <laughs> knowing you, Melissa, and us being friends and knowing your background, it made perfect sense to me that you, this case hit different for you than it does for me and for virtually everybody else. And it makes perfect sense that you would be somebody who would want to get involved. I know your intentions and I know all the work that you've done since your whole world was blown to pieces in 1995. I know all the work you've done for survivors um, and family members of killers. So I think what you're doing is extremely admirable. And I do want to have you kind of like walk me and the listeners through what's transpired after you were able to get in touch with Asa? Um, And we'll do that at the end. And uh, I really want to talk about the GoFundMe because that's Mm -hmm. the most important piece. Um, But so a little background as far as where I'm at with this case. A few years ago, I covered the Lisk uh, serial killer case, Gilgo Murders case, on my podcast Murderish. And I've always been interested in it. It's just a... um, horribly tragic case. And I think that my interest in it lies, I probably share a lot of other people's interest, all the usual stuff, but the fact that um, the victims are mostly all or all um, sex workers and as a vulnerable honor- group of vulnerable people, vulnerable women. Uh, and actually there was a, a, a male found as well that may or may not be connected. Um, but vulnerable women who don't get the same treatment when they go missing or get murdered. They just don't. And that, that actual thing happened in this case. Um, and I'll, I want to walk you through the case, even though I know, you know, about the case, um, I'm going to walk you through it, what we know. So we'll start from the beginning and lead you up all the way up to present day. And then I would love for you to kind of walk us through how you've become connected,
1: which is great because, um, to be really honest with you, I didn't follow this case, and I knew nothing about this case when I reached out to Asa. And I didn't feel like I had to know anything about the case because I knew what it's like to be a family member
0: of a, a serial killer. That's your interest in this case. Yes. Yeah. So, given your background. hmm
1: Yeah. So you walking me through the case is actually
0: really helpful because I don't know. This is going to give you a lot of background and it'll probably have your wheels spinning based on what you know, because there's some things that you know that the public does not know as well. And you can just talk about whatever you're comfortable with at this point. Um, But yeah, let me walk you through it. So, you know, essentially on this whole thing started on May 1st of 2010, 24 year old Shannon Gilbert, arrived uh, in Oak Beach on Long Island, New York, around 2 a.m. And she was there to see a client because Shannon Gilbert is an escort at the time. Um, She's from New Jersey. Sorry. She's from Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, She was there to see a client. And hours after arriving on Long Island, Gilbert makes this frantic and breathless 911 call. And she says on the call, it goes on for more than 20 minutes. I've listened to the whole thing. She says they're trying to kill me. There's somebody after me, um, and it's just this frantic and breathless call. And it just really seemed apparent that Shannon Gilbert was running for her life while she was on nine one one call. Okay,
1: I want
0: to hear Can you. you on the line, Stop. Please stop it, please. Please stop. Please, he should have gone. No, time to go. Please, please. Please.
1: please go that way, please. Come on, let's go. Come on, we're
0: all go Come on, go outside, all us. Come on, fall, outside. No, please. Um, so she makes this, you know, frantic nine one one call. They're trying to kill me. There's somebody after me. And it seemed obvious that Shannon Gilbert was definitely running for her life, uh, during part of the twenty minute plus phone call. And more on that later. We'll go over the call in a little bit more detail. But that 911 call led to a string of grisly discoveries after that. It set off a 13-year investigation of a serial killer who goes by the monikers of the Lisk serial killer, which stands for a Long Island serial killer, the Gilgo Beach murderer, the Long Island Ripper. I think back in the day they were even calling him that. Why Ripper? Did he dismember the bodies? He did. There's been parts found, oh. numerous times, that yeah. are connected uh, to this case. Well, and so, makes- on May third of 2010, two days after Shannon Gilbert's 911 call, her boyfriend Alex Diaz calls her sister Cherie. I think that's how you pronounce it, Cherie. And Diaz uh, says that Shannon had not been home in two days. And so he was worried about her. So Shannon Gilbert's mother, Mary Gilbert, reports her daughter missing. And this is where the sex worker thing comes in. Of course, they didn't want to investigate this because she's a sex worker. Like, oh, they go missing all the time apparently. But seven- Oh, I hate when they say, did she just run away? Do you think she just wanted to get a new life and run away? And that, and that it, It's almost never the case. No. It's almost never the case. So seven long months later, there was a huge search for Shannon Gilbert and it begins in Oak Beach where she was last seen and heard on the 911 call. They bring out canines, detectives, a dive team, everything. But instead of finding Shannon Gilbert, authorities stumble across evidence of a serial killer. And they really did quite literally stumble across it. In December of 2010, Suffolk County, there was a Suffolk County officer who was just out on a routine training uh, uh, call or you, you, like a, routine training exercise with a canine unit off the side of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. And just for proximity, Gilgo Beach is approximately nine miles from Oak Beach. So Shannon Gilbert was last heard on the 911 call. She was in Oak Beach. Gilgo Beach is where this officer from Suffolk County is with the canine unit, just doing some like training exercises. And they're about nine miles from each other. Now, underneath the dense brush in on Gilgo Beach or in Gilgo Beach, the officer found a disintegrated burlap sack. Inside were the skeletal remains of Melissa Bartholomew, 24-year-old petite, four foot ten woman from the Bronx. I should let
1: you know that the burlap sack is a camo. It's not like Oh,
0: it's not like the beige color, like no, the small. It's
1: a no, cam- camouflage. Like, it's camouflage. Did he burlap. have a military
0: background or? I mean I don't not know. that it
1: would matter, but I don't know. I just want to like that is to camouflage the body. So makes visually, sense. I just want you to know it's not it's not beige. It's not I'm picturing beige. Well, uh, like the burlap
0: that people put in their farmhouse look. It's you know, camouflage. Camouflage. Okay, that's interesting. Well, and that make he didn't want people to find these bodies, you know, the person that killed them. So, 2 days later after they find the remains of Melissa Bartholomew. Two days later, they find the remains of three more women. And that would be Maureen Brainerd Barnes, 25 years old. She's a single mother from Norwich, Connecticut. Amber Costello, 27 years old from Babylon, New York. And Megan Waterman, 22 year old single mother from Haw New York. And these women, these four women, would be referred to as the Gilgo Four. And it's, you know, later found out that all these women had a lot in common. You know, they had struggled financially and eventually became sex workers. And that's really... Did they fit a certain type? Are they petite? Are they... Uh, for the most part, from what I can see in photos, they're they they they're on the thinner side, mostly white women, um, younger in their 20s. Well, serial killers normally have a, a type. Yeah, and I can't wait to talk to... Dr. Michelle word about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it, I have read, you know, um, statistics that like Ted Bundy had a type, you know, it's been widely reported that it seemed like he had a type, but I don't know that they all have a type, but I think it's pretty common.
1: My dad had a type. He liked really thin, wavy type of women. Okay. And my dad was six foot six. So I'm wondering if Rex, who were men, like petite, little, like smaller petite Easier women to control. for
0: control. For yeah, it's so dark, but uh, you know, if you're putting yourself in the mind of the serial killer, it would make sense on a practical level. And um, uh, from dismembering what I
1: can and carrying a dead body is carrying,
0: really dismembering, mm-hmm. and controlling. And
1: from talking to experts, so I've been working in true crime for over a decade, and I've met n- numerous experts, and they've all expressed to me that. Um, a dead body is like three times the weight. It's really heavy. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, because they're, they're it's well, it's dead weight. You know, we've all mm-hmm. heard that that it's oh. it's not as easy. I didn't put that like together. Oh, dead right? weight. Yeah. You're welcome. Ooh. Dropping all the knowledge here. You Dropping ruined all the knowledge. That
1: slogan for me, or that <laughs> whatever that. You want to call that
0: the little right? dead weight. Ew. But I mean, it is true. It's like, you know, <laughs> everybody thinks like, oh, yeah, like if I killed so-and-so, I could just pull their body. You No, it's not that easy. So from a practical standpoint, maybe that was his type for practical reasons. I don't know enough about this case okay. to know that that was his type. But there was a case that I covered recently on Murderish, and that was the Nixium Cult Oh, yeah. Keith Ranieri, he had a type. And not saying he's, he's, he was a known serial killer, but he was a, maybe a psychopath, maybe a sociopath. He was just, I covered that case when I worked on the Dr. Oz show.
1: Okay. And I, yeah, I knocked yeah. on his
0: door to get oh, the story, my. and I went to the cult headquarters. Uh, Stop. Okay, that's a story for another day okay, that we're well, going to need yeah. to dive into I because that guy's a real POS. Alexis knows how I feel about him, which everybody feels this way about him. But going back to he had a type. So these pieces of shit who go out and commit these heinous crimes, I mean, I, it's a thing. Like, they often do have a type. So that that's an interesting insight that you bring up. The people who knew the four women, the Gilgo Four, said that they were hired, they had been hired before they died uh, by a generous client on Long Island, and then they were never seen or heard from again. So that was kind of a tip, you know, early on that all these women were going to see, you know, a, a generous client on Long Island. So it's very specific. And um, all the women uh, had been dismembered, placed in a burlap sack, which we now know because of your insight that was more – it was camo. camo. Uh, And it was – and then they were hidden or submerged. So the killer did not want these women found. And it took years to find them.
1: Weirdly that it was circumstantial.
0: Like the odds. I know. It just – he happened upon this, you know. It just – it wasn't supposed to happen. So interesting, and and you know they put a, and well, then here and yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. And in Shannon Gilbert's case, they put out all this effort and came up with nothing at first. But then here, this canine you know exercise is going on, and whoops! And then eventually, you're going to find as we get further in, they do end up finding Shannon Gilbert. So we'll talk about that. Um, but this was essentially the biggest case in Long Island history. The FBI ends up joining the investigation because, of course. And Nassau and Suffolk counties work together to investigate this case, although we would find out later that there was some infighting that caused delays on this case, uh, in this case. So more on that later. Between December 2010 and April of 2011, more bodies and more body parts are discovered along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach. At that point, in total, there were eight sets of remains found. The Gilgo four plus four more. Also found uh, during that search was a skull. um, They found a skull and garbage bags filled with bones on the side of the road, and they ended up IDing three more victims. Those victims included a female toddler, so heartbreaking, uh, between the ages of 16 to 32 months, uh, and they referred to her as baby Doe. And so as it stands today, the total remains found that may or may not be connected to this case, but they were all found in, you know, the same area, the total remains found are 11 bodies. I I say bodies, but there's parts, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but 11 people. And surprisingly, this was, is heartbreaking. The torso of baby Doe's mother, who they call Peaches, was found 15 miles away from baby Doe in a green rubber made container at Hempstead Lake Park Hempstead Lake Park in New York Peach's extremities were found in 2011 during the Gilgo murders investigation and what they did was baby doe and peaches ended up being matched through DNA so they find extremities from peaches the adult woman uh who still has not been identified as of today and they realized that her torso had been found 10 years prior. And they also realized that Peaches is related, is the mother of Baby Doe, who was found as part of the Gilgo murders case. So if Peaches is one of the Gilgo victims, the same serial killer who killed the Gilgo four, that's dating back. To, now we're going back to uh, 10 years prior in... 19- so now we're going back to 1997. So this case could go as far back as that if Peaches is a victim of the Lisk. Okay, so, so I have
1: a story for you. Yeah, please. So one of the first victims of my father was a woman named Dawn. And he, when um, he met her in California, she was with her baby and in the parking lot. And my father approached her and said, he was a father. He just been to my birthday party and, uh, they talked and he invited her into his car to drive her home with the baby, the baby boy. And he pulled over to the side, a secluded road and said he needed to go to the bathroom. He, the, uh, victim Dawn, She gave a statement and said that he walked into the woods. When he returned, he had black eyes and he demanded oral sex.
0: Black eyes, not like an actual bruised
1: eye, but no, his eyes were black. His eyes were black, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I'm really summarizing the story. Yeah, of course. I, it's always uncomfortable for me to sure. share a victim's story, um, because it's their story, but I wanted but to just give told I wanted it. to, yeah, she's told her story, but I wanted to share it only for the context of a baby being found next, you know, being related to another victim, in the sense that my point is is that um my father attacked her. And my father gave the statement that, later on, that he uh, let her go because of the baby, let her live, because he realized he would have to kill the baby. And I'm sharing that because, in this case, that could have happened with the Long Island serial killer, is that when he picked up the sex worker victim, you know, that she had her child with, her, her toddler.
0: Maybe he wasn't expecting it.
1: I mean if you if you want to like paint up her uh, a fuller picture what could have happened a lot of times w- women have a hard time getting child care mm-hmm. and what if she thought she could put her child her toddler in a different area in a different room while she d- committed the sex act to get money because she didn't have child care mm-hmm. and hence made herself and her child were not Made herself a victim, but
0: yeah, you know, got, became got a victim, ca- found herself in the path of a very dangerous predator, yeah. and yeah, and it's interesting that. thank thank you for sharing that, by the way. Um, it's interesting. God, I don't know, I'm crying. Sorry, she's gonna be an old baby. Sorry, I'll get over it. Okay. <sighs>
1: I mean, it's really heartbreaking when you think about these women as real people, that they're mothers, that they're trying to make a living, that sex work is more
0: lucrative than a minimum wage She's job. She's trying when to you have feed children. that baby. And yeah. she did not intend to put her baby in harm's way. It is a means of survival. And I just thought it was interesting that you said your father in that moment, he his conscience kicked in on some level. He couldn't kill the baby. But, but
1: those were his compartmentalization. So later, we're going to talk to Dr. Michelle Ward. And what I have found working with serial killers is that they have compartments, like, mm-hmm. their own rules of life. Like, this is right. This is wrong. This is a yes. This is a no. Yeah. You are safe. You are not. Like, the, these people are um objects and could be discarded. Mm-hmm. And these people are not. So... It also could be that in a lot of crime cases, where maybe the serial killer, who if, if it's a serial killer, whoever killed sure. this mother and child and toddler, um,
0: thought that this toddler could identify him. Yeah, and that was always my thought too. It's like, well, you have to. This sounds so. Uh, terrible, but like you just have to get rid of all the witnesses yeah, because he's self-preservation. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd always thought it was very interesting that they connected Peaches to Baby Doe and um, they called her Peaches because she had a tattoo of a peach with a bite taken out of it um, above one of her breasts. And Peaches, in fact, remains unidentified as of today. Her skull has never been found. So- March of 2011, a skull, some hands, and forearms are found. And DNA ends up matching those remains to a torso that was found in July of 2003. So, several years earlier, by a woman who just was walking her dog. And oh, the, that's horrible. It's, I feel bad for that lady. Well, can well you I feel imagine? bad for the
1: victim, of course. Of like, course. But of course. I, it's
0: all just so. Tragic. How, how traumatizing. Absolutely. I just cannot even imagine. And, um, you know, those but dismembered. these people are just running into
1: body parts and. and it, it, yes. There's that's no what's happening.
0: organized investigation, it feels like. It just feels like, oh, oops. It's random. Ran wow. It. Bodies. Yeah. yeah. And it's just, you know, bag after bag and burlap sack after burlap sack. And those dismembered parts that that woman walking her dog stumbled across. Um, were the, were 20 year old Jessica Taylor, who was an escort who vanished in 2003. And a week after Jessica Taylor was identified, this is interesting. The body of an Asian John Doe was pulled from brush about a quarter mile from the remains of Melissa, Amber, Maureen, and Megan, the Gilgo four. So the Asian John Doe appeared to to have been dead for at least five years. His age was approximated at maybe 17 to 23 years old. Oh, really young. He was young, like the others. He was wearing women's clothing at the time of his death. And uh, he may have also been an escort. I think they found some evidence that maybe he was an escort. He doesn't seem to
1: fit the standard type. However, power and control and... Well, the there's some of, interesting things okay. that
0: you're—so the Asian John Doe is interesting to me because there's two schools of thought, which—and um, and by the way, his identification is also a, still a mystery today. He's just the Asian John Doe. And um one theory, because the Asian John Doe, as dark as it is, he was found with his head crushed. His head had been bashed in. One theory was that the killer felt duped when they discovered that he was actually a man. That was my first thought. So that that's an interesting theory. Like, you know, he was dressed in women's clothing and maybe he was it was a rage killing. However, the the internet searches that we know that the man who was arrested uh, recently, Rex Huberman, did um, there were some internet searches specifically for an Asian man. Really? Yeah, that's and I and I'm like paraphrasing it. up, Maybe I have the direct, you know, the exact search, but he did thousands and thousands of searches, just very disturbing searches. And one of them had to do with an Asian man. So there it is, know, potentially. right? Potentially, potentially. On December 13th of 2011, Shannon Gilbert's body is finally found in the marshlands in Oak Beach, which is on Long Island. And it had been a year and a half after she went missing, uh, after she made that heart-wrenching 911 call running for her life. And it was about a year after the Gilgo Four had been found. So the Gilgo Four were found a year later. Shannon Gilbert, who was really responsible for the Gilgo Four, you know, being found, um, she's found a year after the Gilgo Four. And, you know, I just want to take the time right now to say that You know, in my mind, you know, my opinion, these victims were not defined by their sex work, right? They were, for example, Melissa Bartholomew, a victim, she graduated from cosmetology school. She moved to Buffalo, New York, which is a small town. Uh, She moved from Buffalo, New York to New York City, the Big Apple. She had all these hopes and dreams. She thought that moving to the Big Apple would help toward that goal of working in cosmetology. She went and rented herself a, a basement apartment in the Bronx, but the high cost of, New you know, living in New York really wore on her. At the same time, her boyfriend, Johnny, who was known by pimps as Blaze, got her into sex work in 2006. So she had all these hopes and dreams of working this traditional job of her dreams. She meets this guy. He's integrated with these pimps. He gets her into sex work, and you know Melissa is last seen sitting on the curb outside her apartment on uh, the afternoon of July 10th of 2010. I'm sorry, July 10th of 2009. And Blaze, her boyfriend, had told authorities that Melissa had an overnight job with a client on Long Island the day she disappeared. So again, boyfriend arrested. I hope he was just arrested. I know because you know, he's, he's the one a, who got her into sex work yeah. and, and it's just terrible and it, le- it ultimately led to her death. And he's a pimp. He's a pimp. Exactly. Like,
1: why arrest the sex workers? Why not arrest the an, pimp? Yeah, the are Right. Yeah. If go, you're gonna, go up the if chain. If you're going to do that, I mean, first of all, that's a whole nother conversation about legalizing sex work. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact that the women are
0: jailed more than the John Doe's. Yeah, like, yeah uh, it happens all the time. And, you know, certainly it sounds like from her background, this is not what she, you know, wanted to do. It's something that he sort of pushed of her that. into. And she found herself out of money. And one thing led to another. She got into sex work. But she is not defined by that. And her family certainly knows so much more about her. And they probably don't think of her as, oh, she was a sex worker that got killed. Surprise, surprise. No, she was a family member and she had people who loved her and she had hopes and dreams just like you and I did and do.
1: Well, I love that you're telling me about her because there's a lot of places in the media where they don't focus on the lives of the
0: victims. And I feel like that's really important to know who they are. Because we're going to know everything about Rex Hewerman there is to know. But how much are we going to know about these women? Blaze told authorities, like I said, so it's interesting because, you know, uh, her going to see a client on Long Island matches what all the other women were also going to do. They were meeting a client on Long Island. So people are like, yeah, so of course, Melissa, she seems like she would be connected to this case. Um, But the, of course, the NYPD dismissed Melissa's mother when she reported her daughter missing, just like what happened with Shannon Gilbert. Told her they weren't really going to assign a detective since Melissa was a sex worker. Just straight up. She's not as equally human as you and me. If you go missing tomorrow, I guarantee you there'll be law enforcement on it pretty darn quick because you're not a sex worker. Mm -hmm. It's really sad. Chillingly, for several days after Melissa went missing, her little sister received some very unsettling phone calls. The calls actually came from Melissa's cell phone, and she was already missing at this point. It was a male voice on the other end that told her little sister that Melissa was a whore. Five more calls came in. That same male voice, what we suspect, you know, who we suspect was the killer, Melissa's killer. He had talked about the sexually explicit acts that he'd done to Melissa. He's reliving
1: it. Yeah. He's sadistic, he's it sounds. It. I mean, I'm and not he, an
0: expert, but. And he wanted to
1: torture the family. It's about control. Look at, I have her phone. I'm evil. Going- yeah, just pure, pure. Well, he it wasn't enough to kill her. He wanted to have
0: somebody know that she suffered. Yeah, and he wanted to degrade her. Right. He wanted to let her family members know she's just a whore. And
1: well, that um, I worked on a case. Um, I got an email from a woman in Jennings, Louisiana, and she said, "My father is a suspected serial killer," and. I went down to to the town in Louisiana, and I started to investigate that there's eight sex workers. Again, same story, different case. Um, And how this serial killer would leave the bodies is that he would leave them nude with their legs spread out to embarrass Mm -hmm. the corpse, the woman. Yeah, he posed Um, them. He posed them. So... Instead, the serial killer is calling and taunting the family as a way of shaming versus the mm. the poses of the body. Yeah. Anyway, so um, is that yeah, so it, that case is a documentary on Discovery ID
0: Jennings Eight. Okay. Well, I, I, the, it is a thing that they do. We have watched enough true crime documentaries and listen to enough podcasts to know that there are very sick, sick people out there that, like you said, it's not enough just to kill. They have to degrade and they have to put on a show and they have to taunt and they're just very sadistic and evil and, you know, it's like they get off on it and it's it's pretty sick. Those calls that we think was the killer, let's just, you know, the killer made to Melissa's family member. Those calls were actually traced back to crowded parts of Midtown Manhattan. I know that what you know, based on the, that, doesn't that doesn't surprise you. Yes. Uh, but the final phone call from the man on the other end uh, came on August 26th of 09, and the man said that he'd killed Melissa. Law enforcement was unable to identify the mystery caller at the time. Three days after Maureen Brainerd Barnes went missing in 2007, Her cell phone had pinged off of a cell tower just a few miles from Gilgo Beach. Someone had actually tried to access Maureen's voicemail. So essentially after she went missing and was presumed dead, her killer tried to access her voicemail. To leave a... To leave a, um,
1: you know, a a message, not like, no, to leave the recording that you hear when you call I or to listen to her messages. To see if people were calling to look for her.
0: Oh. That's what I think, but I don't know. It could be where he wanted to leave some creepy message. You never know. Like we can't get into this person's head, but it's just a really extra step. To be using their cell phones and trying to get their voicemail and listen to their voice and call their family members and taunt them its just a real surreal piece of shit, for lack of a better term. Um, And of course, there's patterns among the Gilgo murder victims. They were all sex workers. Most or all of them advertised on Craigslist and Backpage. They experienced a lot of life challenges, uh, tumultuous home life, drug addiction, some of them had boyfriends, more than one of them, who pushed them into sex work. Um, many of them worked traditional jobs prior to sex work. And most or all of them were contacted by a man, a client on a burner phone. And these women who, uh, uh, who died traveled to Long Island to see this generous client. So there's, there's a lot of patterns here. In Shannon Gilbert's final moments, she unknowingly set off an investigation that would break this Gilgo case wide open. And I have to say, her mother, Mary Gilbert, pushing and pushing and pushing law enforcement like, you will investigate my daughter's disappearance because they didn't want to and it took them seven months. I think Mary Gilbert deserves a lot of credit for where we are in the investigation today, which is somebody's been arrested and may very well be responsible for these murders. If Mary Gilbert hadn't pushed. What a mom. I just, a mom. You, you just can, you could feel mm-hmm. it. Like I have chills thinking about her. Again, her daughter isn't a sex worker, her daughter's her daughter. She misses her just as much as you would miss your daughter, and I would miss my daughter. It doesn't matter what they did to make money, I, you miss them just the same. And so I just wanted to, and I, There's an update, a very tragic update with regard to Mary Gilbert, which I want to get into that you you may find pretty shocking. Um, And so really how it all began, going back to Shannon Gilbert, around two in the morning on May 1st of 2010, a man named Michael Pack was a driver for Shannon Gilbert, who was an escort. And he drove her on that day on May 1st, 2010, he drove her from Jersey City to Oak Beach, which is about a 90 minute drive, but she was willing to do it because it was for a $1,500 job. So it was a big job. And she was like, the drive is worth it. That new client that Michael Pack drove Shannon Gilbert to see was Joseph Brewer, a 47 year old recently separated bachelor. Okay, so that was her client. (laughs) Now, Michael Pack- That's not Rex Heuerman. That's not Rex Heuerman. So, Michael Pack parks his black SUV outside of Brewer's home and waits for Shannon. And around three o'clock in the morning, Shannon made six quick phone calls to Michael Pack, and they see this on the phone records. She ended up asking him uh, to buy lubricant and some playing cards. Pack said that he refused. He said, you know, I'm not familiar with this area. I don't want to go looking around in the dark for this stuff that you want and it's reported i don't know for sure but it's a, it's been reported that brewer the client he may have driven shannon that night to the store for lubricant or other items that may or may not have happened and it's unknown what happened when the client joseph brewer and shannon gilbert got back to brewer's house but something made shannon panic at a certain point inside that house around 4:30 in the morning Brewer, the client, calls Michael Pack, the driver. He demands that he get Shannon out of his house. He wanted her out of the house immediately. Wait, the client tells the driver he wants
1: her out immediately? Yeah,
0: and Shannon had been with him for a few hours at this point, but something happened and Brewer, the client, is now calling the driver saying, get her out. Okay, so he seems like he's not a suspect. You're going to form more opinions as we go on for sure. So Brewer actually tried to forcibly remove Shannon from his house, but she went and hid behind his couch. She was afraid of something. She calls 911 from inside Brewer's house, hiding behind the couch, and says she did not want to leave the house. She refused to leave the house. Something outside was very scary to her, and we're going to get more into this in the beginning of that 911 call that Shannon makes she repeatedly says there's somebody after me there's somebody after me but she's saying it somewhat calmly and quietly i would say if you listen to the tape she's not like there's somebody after me she's there's somebody after me and the 911 caller is like wait what you know and she's like there's somebody after me she's behind the couch making this call You can hear Brewer, the client, in the background telling Shannon that, okay, hey, and I'm paraphrasing, okay, just based on what I heard. You could hear him with his accent, like his East Coast, the Long Island accent. And he's saying, all right, I'm going upstairs now. You know, you can leave now. You can leave. And she's not leaving. You can hear him in the background saying this. And then you can hear the driver, Michael Pack, in the background coming up to Shannon and almost kind of like giggling a little bit. He's like, "Are you okay?" This is. Weird. I mean, he's this like is really it, weird. I yeah, am not following this situation. I can't make this. It's going to be bizarre. It's it's. There's a lot of different conclusions that you can draw, but there's more. Okay. So, Michael Pack, the driver, who Shannon's very familiar with, he drove her to this you know job that he probably drove her to others. They knew each other well. He's going up to her, and he's in Brewer's house, and he's just like, "Are you okay?" And he's telling her, it's me, Michael. And Shannon says, what do you, she says to Michael Pack, presumably, she says, what are you going to do to me? Are you going to kill me? And then Pack says, are you crazy? He's like, let's go back to, and again, I'm paraphrasing on this one. He's like, are you crazy? Like, let's just, let's go back to Manhattan. We're near the water. We're on the ocean. And, you know, I have to stop and say something that for a sex worker to call 911, that's yeah. a big deal because the last thing a sex worker wants to do is call law enforcement because they are doing something that's against the law. I had to explain themselves and yeah. get arrested. And for, get arrested. Yeah. So in my mind, Shannon Gilbert must have been extremely afraid to take that step. It's just my
1: take is there on any it. any connection between Rex Hummerman and this client?
0: That I don't know. But I wonder if it could come out later. But after you hear a little more, maybe you won't wonder that, but maybe you will. So Shannon, in in my mind, if you listen to the 911 call, Shannon doesn't seem afraid of Joseph Brewer, the client. She wants to stay inside of his house. Uh, She didn't want to go. What my take is that she did not under any circumstances want to go outside into the total darkness at 4.30 in the morning in an unfamiliar place. She was scared of something outside, not inside the house. That's my take. Where in Long Island are you? I don't know. You want to kill me? Are you in a house? Are you in a house?
1: Yeah.
0: Whose house is it? I don't
1: know. Who is Mike? What's his last
0: name? Mike what? How old are you? What's his last name? I hate to not play the entire thing because... You can take things out of context if you only hear, you know, bits and pieces. So I encourage anybody who's listening right now, go listen to the entire 20-plus minute call. It's going to be very insightful. Um, It is hard to listen to it at times. Can we have a link? Um, Can we have a link? No, can we put a link on our show description for people to listen to it? Yes. Yeah. Let's do that. We'll leave a link to the audio uh, in our show notes. So if you're listening right now, go to our episode notes there will be a link there. And I encourage everybody to listen to it. Um, And what was interesting is it took authorities 12 years to release this 911 call. Why? Why 12 they kept, years? They kept saying, this is part of an active investigation. We can't, you know, which I think is always like the go-to when you don't want to release something and you, so you, you're, you're, Your knee jerk is just to say like, oh, it's part of the active investigation. Well, they did that with the Delphi, the Delphi girls that were murdered. They didn't release all of the the clips from the phone or the audio. And you can understand it at a certain point, I think. But I guess a, a large, the public seems to me largely believes you were stalling for other reasons. But- Maybe not. Maybe they really were like, hey, this is an active investigation. But a lot of people are like, you really weren't actively investigating this thing at that time. So, you know, I guess it could go either way. But the fact is they didn't release it for 12 years. But it is out now. Now, at a certain point, Shannon did leave the house, but she's still on the phone with a 911. And she runs. I mean, she runs and she's on the phone. You can hear her like, (sighs) like running. Okay, and she's running while she's on the phone with nine one one. She's on the phone with him for more than twenty minutes, and you have to really understand that Shannon is running in complete darkness over sand dunes through really tall tangled reeds. She, I believe, she was barefoot for part or all of it because her shoes were found. And I'm telling you, these reeds are like this tall. So she's running. I imagine you could become very disoriented, like very quick. She's in an area she's not familiar with. She's 90 minutes from home, but she runs and she's in total darkness and she stays on the phone with 911 she runs and reaches the door of 75 year old Gus Coletti around five o'clock in the morning Coletti opens the front door he sees a terrified Shannon Gilbert on his front porch and you can hear him because she's still on the phone with 9 wow, this is all captured all of it's captured and you can wow. very clearly hear him with his accent you know we're from Southern California so I picked up on you know on the accents he's like um he asks her like what's wrong is somebody after you and she's basically like doesn't say much to him you can kind of hear her grunt or something, but there really were not a lot of words exchanged between them. But he's asking her, "You want to come inside? Like, are you okay? Is somebody after you?" And she just takes off running again. Okay, but she's still on the phone with nine one one.
1: Moments she on later, drugs is she huh, on
0: drugs? No drugs were found in her system. Okay, her that's autopsy that comes in later. Okay. So that's why right. this is. I'm there.
1: just like that's the first thought in my head Me is, too. Like,
0: is Me too is she
1: having a, a mental episode? Yeah. yeah. That, that you, would,
0: you would think that, but it's just- Like a paranoia episode? Yeah. I mean- No drugs were found in her system during the autopsy. Wow. So moments later, after Shannon Gilbert takes off running again from that 75-year-old Gus Coletti's house, a black SUV appears at Gus Coletti's house, a small-framed Asian man matching Michael Pack's description, who is Shannon Gilbert's driver, who we talked about earlier- Pulls up, asks Coletti if he'd seen a girl running. And Coletti says, yeah. And she seemed very upset. Coletti further tells Pack that he's already contacted emergency services, to which the Asian man who fits Pac's description replies, you should not have done that. She's going to be in a lot of trouble. Now, then, Shannon, after she leaves Coletti's house, she's still on the phone with 911. This is a, this is very confusing. Yes, It is. This has been the biggest. And, you know, I'm going to jump ahead. To this day, Shannon Gilbert has not been connected officially to the Gilgo case. And in fact, the Suffolk County police or law enforcement, they don't believe she's connected to the case. They believe she uh, accidentally drowned in the marsh that night. So I'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah. Th- this is going to have your wheels spinning. It is. Th- they After are. It's, they it's are varying. Spinning. But Shannon was obviously afraid of something. She's running for her life, it seems like. She runs to another woman's house named Barbara Brennan. She lives in the same neighborhood as Gus Coletti. She runs to the house. Barbara hears the knocks on the door, calls 911. While she's on the phone with 911, the most eerie thing is that you can hear Shannon Gilbert's knocks on the door. And they're frantic and they're loud. It just, it just gave me chills when I was listening to it. Where is that call? Do we have a link to that as well? The link that I have is going to have all of this on it. Wow. Yeah. It's the entire 911 call that goes on for more than 20 minutes. And that call, there were three, a total of three 911 calls, Shannon Gilbert's, uh, Barbara Brennan, and Gus Coletti. They all called separately. And those are all, I believe, available. I know that I heard Barbara Brennan's. Mm-hmm. I heard Gus Coletti's voice on Shannon Gilbert's call. I don't think that I've heard Gus Coletti's call to 911. But he may have made it after Shannon left. I, that's my impression. So Barbara calls 911. You can hear knocking on the door as she's saying to the 911 oper- operator, and I'm paraphrasing, She says, like, somebody's knocking on my door, but I'm not going to let her inside because there's a a woman on her porch knocking frantically. And this elderly lady, I don't know how old she was, but she seemed to be a bit elderly. She's not going to answer the door. She doesn't know this woman, but she does the right thing, and she calls 911. So she never opens the door for Shannon. You can hear Shannon knocking, but Shannon does, in fact, eventually just leave and takes off running again, which is still being caught. Her breathless running is being caught on this 911 call that just goes on for 20 minutes. And this the the awful thing is that you hear the last human contact that Shannon Gilbert had before she died, right before she died. Because what happens is Shannon runs off again from that lady neighbor's house. And there are these tall weeds, tall ocean weeds, the reeds, I think is what they're called. And they're very tall. They look to me like they're as tall as us, but you see on a map that there's this thin trench, almost like somebody took, I'm not using the right terms, but like a lawnmower and cut a little path, like a long path. And I had read later that they did that like for mosquito prevention or something like that. So it's theorized that Shannon ran along that path with these tall, you know, weeds on the each side of her in total darkness. And that was on December 13th of 2011. You can hear really heavy breathing as Shannon continues running. There's no talking. It's just <sighs> <sighs> like, you're, she just will not stop running. Okay. Shannon's body would not be found until a year and a half later on December 13th of 2011. Wait, wait. In that march. What's the end of? The 911 call. How does it end? The ending, if I can remember correctly, is her running through the marsh, but not saying anything. During part of the call, you can hear Shannon's blood-curdling screams. And I, my theory is that that's when she saw the SUV approaching or she saw she was afraid of something. And she's like, ah, ah, like blood, high-pitched, but I think the end of the call, if I'm remembering correctly, is just her breathing hard and running. And then her body's found in that marsh a year and a half later.
1: Well, if you're running and hiding, you're not going
0: to scream. But if you're captured, you're going to scream. Yeah. So something, and that happened before the last part of the call, like she screams at some point. So something scares her. Mm-hmm. And Gus Coletti, in fact, reported that when the black SUV pulled up, which was being driven supposedly by Michael Pack, Shannon's driver, because he he described him and he matched the description, that Shannon went and hid behind a boat. She did not want to be found. And it, so it seems apparent she didn't want to go with Michael Pack, who she knew well, who drove her to the job. Okay. But I'm going to talk a little bit more about Michael Pack a little okay. soon. Yeah, this is. Uh, it's it's all really over the place, right? Mind baffling. Yes. So Suffolk County police fought to keep that 911 call, Shannon Gilbert's call, hidden. And they cited it's part of an active investigation, but the Gilbert family was having none of it, and they fought to get access to that 911 call. It took 12 years, like we talked about earlier, but they believed it could lead to Shannon's killer. Now, the Gilbert family hounded police to investigate Shannon's disappearance. And again, like I said earlier, it took them seven months, but they finally did. Joseph Brewer, the 47-year-old client that brought Shannon, or Shannon went out to Gilgo Beach for, um, he came under strong suspicion, of course, at first in her murder. Yeah, you have to look at him. You do. He was one of the last peoples. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so he came under strong suspicion. The FBI, on de- in December of 2010, the police, the FBI, surround his home and- Uh, He is, in fact, his home is located only three miles from where four sets of remains were found. So, of course, he's a suspect. Plus, he, you know, Shannon was at his house. Are there
1: multiple killers operating on Long Island?
0: That's been theorized. Okay. So Brewer actually was cooperative with investigators. He claimed he had nothing to do with Shannon's disappearance. And after questioning and a search of his Oak Beach home and seizing his vehicle, he's ruled out as a suspect. Okay. So if he's totally innocent... You That's hear traumatizing. Him, it is. And you hear him on the call. Like, it seems pretty obvious he did not kill Shannon Gilbert. He wanted her out of the house. You can hear him. So, Shannon's driver, Michael Pack, also um, came under suspicion. And he claimed that he drove around for hours that night looking for her, finally gave up around dawn, and ended up driving home. Early on in the investigation, uh, they did clear Michael Pack as a suspect. And... You know, I will say after listening, Shannon seemed to be running away from Michael Pack because at one point you can hear her on the call while she's in Brewer's house and she's talking to Michael Pack. She's like, you're in it all along. In what? Like you were in it all along. That's what she says to him. I don't know what she's talking about, but you've got to listen to the call. Mm -hmm. So... Of course, when I first, you know, covered this case, I thought, God, Michael Pack had something to do with this. She's running from him. She clearly does not want to go home. Otherwise, she would have gotten into his SUV and got out of Dodge, but she didn't. She didn't want to be with him. She didn't want to leave Joseph Brewer's house. She didn't want to go with Pack, who she knew well. So it's all very mysterious, but Pack was cleared as a suspect. Now, back to back to the 2010 investigation, a criminal profile of the killer was developed. They determined that it's likely a man in his mid 20s to mid 40s, highly intelligent, wealthy, with a highly sadistic streak. Compare that to who's been arrested. Potentially, they also said this man is the killer, is potentially a seasonal visitor of Long Island, uh, Gilgo, Be- Gilgo Beach, specifically, because all the victims disappeared between Memorial Day and Labor Day. Now, okay, summertime. Yes. All right, that's when families go on vacation. Thank you. That specifically, his family. I'm talking about Rex right now. My mind is going toward. We know for a fact that many of these women were killed while Asa, his Rex's estranged wife, was out of town. So it would make sense to me that she would go out of town on holidays. Maybe, maybe not, and then he would go and kill. Now, obviously, this is just a theory, but it is a fact that— It would make sense
1: because um, for serial killers, you don't want any leakage of your double life. So he would have to explain, especially if he's dismembering them, he'd have to explain blood evidence or, like, the bloody
0: car or blood— It's a lot of time and effort to do these things. And
1: he needs privacy to operate— Maybe he's not killing the victims in his home, but he needs privacy to discard any evidence. And having a wife who's questioning, hey, why are you bloody? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It it makes sense. Why did you have bloody pants in the washing machine? Right. Exactly. He he needs to to be able to hide this as best as possible. I will say serial killers have some really... Incredible excuses. I worked on a case where Robert Yates um, told his children that the blood in the car after a victim was that he helped an injured dog off the road. So I mean, yeah, they have uh, to make up these excuses for mm-hmm. the dirty
0: things that they're doing,
1: right? And he just if, if this true if Rex truly is the serial killer, then he, you know, he's alleged right now. Um, but if it's him, then that was.
0: That was why he didn't want to have to explain it to his family. Makes sense. Shannon Gilbert's autopsy revealed no drugs in her system. So, uh, and her cause of death undetermined, sadly. Um, Suffolk County police said that she drowned accidentally. They theorized that Shannon became disoriented and entangled in the tall thickets, accidentally drowned in the marsh, um, that seems May- kind of weird. It but seems it doesn't weird seem po- that possible, right? And she seemed very coherent in these nine one one calls. So it's not like she was like out of it. It didn't seem like it. Now to their point, maybe you could become disoriented in this marsh. Maybe not. But she was afraid of something. She was afraid of something. So and no drugs found in the system. That said, the Gilbert family wanted a second autopsy because they're like this is a homicide, right? Uh, they got their chance for a private autopsy Uh, because her death was listed as undetermined, and they were not satisfied with that. They got their chance with renowned pathologist and former chief medical examiner of New York City, Dr. Michael Baden. Now, Dr. Baden, uh, he had worked on really high-profile cases in the past, like JFK, Nicole Brown Simpson, Ronald Goldman, uh, Aaron Hernandez, and Sid Vicious. So he's a very high-profile pathologist. Dr. Baden conducts the autopsy on Shannon Gilbert, and while while he still while her death is still undetermined, he says that due to her missing larynx and fractures in the neck, that Shannon's death is consistent with homicidal strangulation. Wow. That's what he concluded. Suffolk County Police still maintain that Shannon's death may not or is not tied to the Gilgo Four case, so they're not tying it, you know, to that. But the family believes it did. That it is.
1: But he's the reason why, from my understanding, so I haven't been following the case, but the one thing um, you know, I will talk about flying to Long Island and meeting Asa. And before I met Asa, I was wondering why did this take so long to to arrest Rex Huberman? And the one thing that that stood out in articles was just about this character. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know anything about Shannon or any of the other victims, I just ended up falling on this particular asshole.
0: <laughs> yeah. James Burke, former Suffolk County police chief, reportedly kept the FBI in the dark uh, and limited their involvement in Shannon Gilbert's case. So he is an asshole as far he as I'm concerned. He might have had, People say. He well, might have been with her before. Okay. Well, we're going to. Let me just you just might've hit the nail on the head. People basically say that he is responsible for botching the case. Burke resigned in October of 2015, and then details about his extracurricular activities emerged, uh, which made the Gilbert family think of him as a potential suspect in Shannon Gilbert's murder. Burke was rumored to have had participated in wild sex parties with escorts, these parties went down in the same area where bodies were later found, and during the time he was police chief. In 2011, an escort came forward, previously worked at Burke's at Burke's sex party. She signed an affidavit, said in a press conference that Burke was rough with women and he was domineering. In 2016, five years later, Burke is in fact sentenced to 46 months in federal prison for conspiring to cover up an assault. Basically, he had attacked a, a drug addict in custody who'd broken into Burke's car and stole a duffel bag and what was inside, it was full of sex toys and porn.
1: Okay, so I pulled up this morning the New York Post. It's August 22nd. Disgraced Ex-Suffolk County Police Chief who botched Gilgo Beach case and beat up porn thief
0: porn, porn thief. thief. Oh my <laughs> god. <laughs> Way to like make it succinct. Oh, I should have just said porn the porn thief. thief. He is now
1: <laughs> known as the porn the thief. The porn thief, that's <laughs> uh, hey, somebody had to do I it. I love you, New York Post. Yeah, somebody had oh to do it. Oh my gosh, You did him dirty. <laughs>
0: well, and no ch- no charges were ever fi- ever filed against this asshole Burke uh you know for his well, potential to, obstruction of well, Shannon Gilbert's investigation. Well, yeah, on that part. But he went to federal prison for beating a crook who stole his dildo yeah. and porn stash. Yeah. Can you imagine that's what he that's what you go to prison for? Like if I'm gonna go to prison, I want it to be something so badass, but also like kind of valiant. Yeah. Like Jamie Rice went to prison because she beat the shit out of a dude who'd attacked Another woman in her presence, like yeah. I, you know, what I mean? like I wanted to be something valiant and badass, but this guy went to prison because he a had dildo, a- <laughs> not the dildo, <laughs> not the dildo, okay. sending you to prison. So James Burke. Yeah, 59 so g was picked yeah. up
1: in Suffolk County Vietnam Veterans Memorial Park in Farmington, uh, sorry Farmingville, by park rangers at about ten fifteen a.m. for soliciting for soliciting sexual engagement. Uh,
0: <laughs> so he was into sex workers, but and he came under suspicion as far as the the uh, Shannon Gilbert's family are concerned. But as we all know, there's been an arrest, and it wasn't that guy. Okay, so the rangers didn't know who Burke was. Oh.
1: This just happened, like literally. Yeah. This just happened. So the Rangers didn't know who Burke was until he identified, identified himself and tried to worm out of the arrest by saying it would be a public humiliation. Um, the officers were not swayed. Too late, Authorities bro. later brought Burke to the Sixth Precinct for processing, where he was charged with offering a sex act, public lewdness, indecent exposure, and criminal solicitation. Harrison said at a press briefing.
0: Yeah, so uh, he's, he's yeah. a weirdo. Um, yeah. You know, we talked about it earlier that the Gilgo murders could go as far back as 1997, but it turns out they could go as far back as 1996, the year I graduated high school. Um, Wait, uh, uh, a year after my father was arrested. Right. You're always going to – when you said that, and, and the year your father was arrested was the year, I believe, that I heard the O.J. Simpson trial verdict mm-hmm. that really – Shook October me. 3rd. Shook the world. 1995. Right? Uh, in 1996, there was a couple out for a walk, again, stumbling upon body parts. A couple was out for a walk on nearby Fire Island in New York. They found two severed legs wrapped in plastic. The legs were a DNA match to bodies found on Gilgo Beach between 2010 and 2011, which is when the other, like the Gilgo Four were found. So this body could be part of the case. That was found back in 1996. Parts were found. So this case could go as far back as that. Um, in Jan- On January 16th of 2020, new evidence was released to the public, and this was big. The law enforcement released images of a belt that was found at the crime scene in 2011. On that belt, as you know, embossed in that belt in leather are the initials WH. And now this matches with Rex Heuerman, the man who stands charged with some of these murders, right, as of recently, matched Rex Huerman's grandfather, William Heuerman, who died in 1964. So there's that WH. We don't know for sure, maybe you do, if that belt was Rex's grandfather's, but it certainly does match the initials. Mm. Interesting. And it was found on a body. Now, it's believed, of course, that this belt with the initials on it belonged to the killer. And people are still unsure to this day why Suffolk County Police, once again, waited nine years to release this information. And, you know, I think it may have been released just to show the families like, hey, yeah, we are still working on this case. Look, look, we got this belt. I don't know. Now, property records show that Rex Heuerman and his family lived in the home that's become famous now, unfortunately, which he bought from his mother Dolores for one hundred and seventy thousand dollars in nineteen ninety four. Oh, geez, this is where people are thinking that the family's wealthy. Yeah, because ninety
1: four, almost two hundred thousand, is a decent price to pay. So, what is the house worth now? Probably a mil I, I, or more. I know it's. You I don't know. know. I don't know
0: property values on the east, over on there. The east coast. Yeah. I don't know. Probably you know. quite a bit. Yeah. Now, here's a shocking aftermath. Um, July 2016, Mary Gilbert, who is Shannon Gilbert's mother, the, the woman who sort of set this whole thing off, she'd fought hard to bring Shannon's killer to justice. Uh, now, Mary Gilbert was actually killed in July of 2016 by her own daughter, Sarah Gilbert. Now, this ended any chance for Mary Gilbert to ever see her daughter's killer brought to justice, which is just absolutely heartbreaking. And how she died is is equally as heartbreaking. Um, Her daughter, her own daughter, which would be Shannon Gilbert's sister, Sarah stabbed Mary Gilbert, stabbed her mother over 200 times.
1: 200.
0: Yeah. 200
1: times. It's a lot
0: of effort to keep doing that. So this is like rage. You're, You're very angry, it seems like. And Sarah had a history of mental illness. And it came out that Sarah resented her mother, Mary Gilbert, for reporting her to authorities for drowning a puppy. Now, Sarah, um, Shannon Gilbert's sister, was found guilty of killing her mother, uh, second-degree murder. She was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Just a shocking, shocking turn of events uh, for Mary Gilbert. Now, July 14th of 2023 is the big day. On this day, as you had alluded to earlier, Melissa, this is big news. On this day, about a month ago from this recording, 59-year-old architect and business owner Rex Heuerman was arrested and charged with first and second degree murder of three women. And that would be Melissa Bartholomew, Megan Waterman, and Amber Lynn Costello. Uh, He's also considered a prime suspect in the murder of Maureen Brainerd Barnes. These four women make up the Gilgo Four. So we have somebody in custody who may very well be this long sought after serial killer. All of these women that I just mentioned went missing between 2007 and 2010. Huerman has pleaded not guilty. He was ordered by the judge to provide a DNA swab so that prosecutors can compare that DNA to uh, that uh, DNA that they had collected previously as part of this investigation. Which they found off a discarded pizza crust. Oh, my gosh. I just that whole tie in. Mm-hmm. Authorities were able to catch up with Rex Hiramen via a year's old witness report of a Chevy Avalanche pickup truck in Amber Costello's case. Uh they also uh found, you know, some did some subsequent DMV record searches, their cell phone evidence from burner phones and victim cell phones, as well as DNA from a discarded pizza crust. So let me walk you through quickly how this all went down. How did they connect Rex Hewerman to the Gilgo case? So number one, in 2010, a man, a client, arrived at Amber Costello's house in West Babylon, New York, for services. On September 2nd of 2010. So, she's an escort. He's there for services. Wasn't there a bait and switch with this? Yeah. So, exactly. Mm -hmm. Reports say that Amber's roommate confronted the male client uh, uh, after he threatened Amber. And then she then locked herself inside of a bathroom. The male client leaves and the roommate tells police later after Amber's, you know, uh, disappears... That this male client left in a first-generation Chevy Avalanche truck, which the roommate thought was a bit unique. It was a different kind of looking truck it is. for the time. Yeah. And it is, because I've, I've seen it.
1: It's a unique um, body frame. It's ugly.
0: <laughs> it is. Based on interviews, uh, the witness, who was Amber's roommate, described the male client who left her house that day in his Chevy Avalanche truck. Um, described him as large, ogre... White male with em- with an empty gaze, approximately six foot four to six foot six in height, in his mid forties, with dark bushy hair and big oval style nineteen seventies type eyeglasses. And sounds I sounds like it, my dad. Oh my god, my dad's six foot six. They've called him a an
1: ogre. Um, he has a wavy hair and
0: he wears nineteen seventies Dahmer glasses. Okay, well mm-hmm. you. That's just one of the many is that weird? things that, like, weird, that is you similar could, about your dad's case to this He was
1: case. actually in his 30s when he was arrested. My dad was. So that's the only thing that. But that's that, still pretty status, yeah. similar. Okay. So
0: I'm just going to stop right here and just say this witness description and the previous profile crimin, uh, that criminal profilers did put together matched Rex Hewerman, the guy who's been arrested, to a T. He's a man he was in his mid he was in his 40s when this all went down. Um, he's highly intelligent as described by employees of RH consultants, which is Rex Huerman's architectural firm. He may or may not have been wealthy, but we do know that he was a business owner of an architectural firm. so he had resources well, with financial highly, problems from what I saw in the house. Okay, yes.
1: the severe, severe. Was it reported? the IRS?
0: I don't know. He there was um I went through his folders. Okay, so financial, he was experienced. so it's like they're describing him as wealthy. That could just mean that maybe a lot of income may have been coming in, or a lot yeah, is I relative. Think projects, but maybe uh, he doesn't do well with money.
1: What I saw is his projects were about like 240000 you know, would be
0: uh like one client. Got it. Okay, you know. so he had the ability to be a wealthy man, you know, uh, now whether he was or not, I have not dived into his financial records, but this is just dead on. And the highly sadistic streak we know by his internet searches, which we'll talk about and those phone calls that he made to the victims, like he, it, you know, if that was Rex Huerman, this is a highly sadistic person. So, um, and what I will say is I'm here to say that Rex Huerman is in fact an ogre. I mean I I don't care if I, anybody's offended. I mean he he just he does look like an ogre with empty eyes. Like it just it just matched him perfectly. So that's very eerie. And um the roommate's tip gets buried for years, right? This is a really important tip. He may very well have come face to face with Amber Costello's and other women's murderer. He gives this tip, but it sort of gets buried for years and years about the Chevy avalanche. Not surprised. These are sex workers. It's unfortunate. Now, fast forward to 2020, a hair recovered from a burlap sack uh, from Megan Waterman's body, which was found in December of 2010, was preserved as evidence for years. In 2020, forensic scientists generate a DNA profile for that hair. They determined it belonged to a male in mitochondrial haplogroup V7A. Scientists also conclude that numerous hairs found on Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello belong to a female in mitochondrial haplogroup K1C2. That hair comes into play later, and we're going to talk about that right now. Fast forward to March 2022, authorities go through mountains of evidence in the case just to kind of see like, hey, maybe we missed something in this Gilgo case, and this pays off. That's when authorities are able to narrow their search to Massapequa Park and Midtown Manhattan based on cell records. They take a second look at the previous witness account of the Chevy Avalanche parked at Amber's house. They search and they find a first-generation Chevy Avalanche registered to a man named Rex Hewerman. The truck matched the description Amber's roommate provided in 2010. This put authorities on Rex Heuerman as a suspect in Amber Costello's murder, and then a deep search ensues into Rex Huerman. After linking Huerman to the truck parked at Amber's house, investigators review cell phone records. This connected him to numerous burner phones used to plan meetings with three of the victims and to make menacing calls to Melissa Bartholomew's family member. Cell records show that the victim's cell phones are pinging are pinging off of cell towers in the area of Massapequa, where Rex lived, and Manhattan, where Rex worked. So you can see how this is all yeah, coming it's all coming together. together. Like, bro, you're fucked. Yeah, I yeah. just don't know what else yeah. to say. Um, and in some instances, this is huge. Both the victim's cell phone and Rex's personal cell phone are pinging in the same area at the same time. So this is indicating that Rex potentially had the victim's cell phones on his person. There it is. Yeah. So court documents reveal that Hewerman used his Amex in the same area where he called victims on burner phones. Also... Made calls on Maureen Brainerd Barnes's cell phone to check voicemail and con- and contact Melissa Bartholomew's family members in the same areas where he used his Amex card and called victims on burner phones. So everything's tying in. Yeah, I see this. They're circling right? in. It's it's. Um... Very apparent. Very apparent. So then, July 2022, a detective goes to Rex Hewerman's house, retrieves 11 bottles from the trash can of Rex's home. Suffolk County Crime Lab swabs those bottles and sends the DNA. I didn't know about that. I just saw about the pizza crust. That's what I heard. This is how they tied it. Oh, it's so interesting. Got it. So, after they collect the 11 bottles, send them off for DNA testing. Then they find also that Huraman had a Tinder account. Detectives linked this Tinder account back to his Amex card, which was used to make Google Play payments to Tinder. Now, follow me for just one second. I'm going to tie it all up right here. Tinder records show that Rex went by the name Andy on his Tinder profile. The Tinder profile Andy is linked to one of the burner phones linked to Rex Heuerman. The burner phone was linked to an email account that was created in 2011, and a search warrant on that email account revealed selfie photos likely taken by Rex Heuerman and sent to sex workers to solicit services. So, how much like tell me you is. are a serial killer without telling me you're a serial killer. I, I obviously he stands accused and an innocent before proving guilty. but I all I can just they've got I'm a very looking strong case. for, yeah, it's
1: a very strong case. I'm looking forward to the trial to see how his uh, attorney spins this. Absolutely. This is going to be so... What I know about the justice system and about trials is like, who has a better story? Who has the most believable story? But yeah. now we have DNA and DNA tells
0: the story. It, it absolutely tells a story. And we've we've been with this DNA evidence thing for long enough to know that it's solid evidence. So... Basically, they find all these you know searches that Rex Heuermann apparently did, thousands of internet searches. Not only was he searching into specific details for the Gilgo murders case, he was also searching very disturbing and detailed violent acts against a what I will say is a specific type of girl, some sometimes underage. I refuse to repeat here what those searches were because they're I'm it's hard it's not good. So anybody who wants to go google that you can see but I can tell you that his searches were deeply
1: well what deeply we can probably what what might be helpful to people listening in is if we put a link to the arrest warrant yes. paperwork and, and you can read, read it yourself. It. You can read everything that we've just discussed and um some of the reports out there are redacted, some of them are not, but we could just have maybe the full unredacted document for those who, who want. want to seek it out. Yeah. I just don't want yeah. to trigger anybody. It's it's yeah. It's, and we, I mean, some people might not have headphones on like
0: yeah. we requested and there yeah. might be children listening. Yeah. We can just tell you that the information is out there. I can tell you with 100% certainty, it's deeply disturbing and disgusting. And so the information is out there if you'd like to, to read it. January 2023, a year after authorities discover the Chevy Avalanche registered to Huerman, while they're doing surveillance, that team recovers a pizza box on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan outside of Huerman's office, and they see Rex Huerman outside of his office and discard the pizza box. So what do they do? Of course, they go pick it up. They find some pizza crust, which of course they send to the lab. February of 2023, a month DNA testing from profiles created from one of the eleven bottles indicated. So, on the ele- one of the eleven bottles taken from the Huerman's trash, indicated that a female individual belonging to mitochondrial haplogroup K1C2 uh, is connected to that bottle. This is the same mitochondrial haplogroup as female hairs found on three of the victims. Okay. not the crust. So authorities believe that that female is Hewerman's wife, estranged wife, Asa. April of 2023, two months later, a male hair, is, f- which is f- which was found on one of the victims, is sent to the forensic lab for testing. A month later, surveillance footage shows Hewerman purchasing minutes for one of those burner phones. So this is just more evidence. Then in June of 2020, 20- 2023, the lab concludes that male hair found on a victim and the pizza crust had the same mitochondrial DNA profiles, excluding 99.96% of the North American population. Let that sink in. What that means is that a hair found on a Gilgo victim has a DNA profile that matches pizza crust that they saw Rex Huerman discard, and those DNA profiles can those two DNA profiles can only belonged to 004 percent of the North American population, and Rex Huerman is in that tiny 004 percent population of people. His based lawyer on the damn has pizza a lot crust. of work to do. <laughs> His lawyer, your fuzz, yeah excuse my language, but yeah, it's over. So this takes us to where we are today. You know, July of 2023, Hewerman is arrested and charged. He's currently on suicide watch. Um, You know, there was a lot of infighting between the agencies, which I'm sure caused delays in this case. Now, former high school classmates describe Hewerman as a recluse, very quiet, sometimes bullied, a loner. Apparently, he was bullied, and then he grew bigger, taller, and then certain people became afraid of him. There are accounts of him snapping. More women sex workers have come forward recently and talked about their interactions with Rex Huerman. Nicole Brass, a former escort, described publicly- Oh, she- I've been talking to her. Okay, so- Yeah, we can, ha- we can have her on the podcast if the listeners
1: want her on to That would to be talk. amazing.
0: Yeah. Well, she uh, escaped him, according to her report, which- I have no reason not to believe. So, Nicole Brass, she's a former escort. She described publicly how she escaped an encounter with Hewerman sometime between 2014 and 2016. Brass said that Hewerman got excited when talking about the remains of the Gilgo murder victims. Um, There are employees. Yes, Yes, it's Nikki Brass. Is that? So, you've been talking
1: to her? I've been talking to Nikki Brass. She's a beauty, by the way. Yeah. She's so pretty and... um, yeah, I'll message her and see if she would like to join us to have that would a conversation. Be yeah, well, I'm
0: sure she has a lot of insight, and thank yeah. God that she survived.
1: Yeah, I told her she did um, a fabulous job on going on. I think CNN.
0: She, okay, she went on some talk shows. Good. Yeah, and I hope that people take her seriously. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, one cause... thing that stood out to me about her conversations in the media is that, you know, I was a former sex worker, and I'm like she does hair now, and she's like. Get it right, folks. Yeah. Like
0: <laughs> I know, and they yeah. all just want to call her a sex so, yeah, worker. Yeah, like, they do. Again, she's not defined by that. No,
1: I think that would be lovely to have her on to talk about the the stigma and uh, about being a sex, a
0: former sex worker. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that she would okay. have a lot of insight. Employees at RH Consultants, which is uh, uh, Rex's architectural firm, said that he loved guns, he loved hunting, he bragged a lot about lying in wait while bear hunting, seemed to enjoy grossing out employees and giving them information that they didn't want to hear about his hunting shenanigans. Well, then if he's a hunter, he probably dismembers animals. Yeah, his experience. Mm -hmm. See, I know. And then the defense is probably going to be like, that arm saw was so that he could do whatever with his animals. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. Um, They, you know, other people described him as creepy at work. And, you know, I suspect Rex's estranged wife, Asa, probably has a very different memory of him, fond memories. Like, you know, everybody's describing all the bad things now that he's been arrested. Like, oh yeah, he was creepy and he was this, and maybe he was all those things. But to his estranged wife, Asa, I would imagine she has a lot of different... Uh, she has different memories. It was
1: um, I was able to meet with her, but um, I want to go back to the hair for a second. Yeah, because, let's talk about it. Um, as a female, my hair, I shed so much hair of everywhere, yeah. all the time. Yeah. So, And Asa has longish hair. But anywho, um, you know, just because her hair is found doesn't mean she is a part of this in any way. First of all, they've already ruled that she has an alibi. she was out of town. I just want to make the record straight that even though they found I transfer that transfer yeah. DNA, which is the hairs, it doesn't mean that she was involved. Plus, I mean, she was driving when uh, she drove the avalanche. She actually didn't have a car. So I will share this. Yeah. um the day that Rex was arrested the same time, the feds went to her house. And told her, we have a warrant and we're going to search this. You need to leave. And they seized the car, but they helped her go get a rental car. And then Asa went to her father lives nearby. He's elderly and very sick. And the press quickly found where she was at and it was causing problems with her father's health. Mm -hmm. And so she issued a statement like, please press. Leave me alone. You're hurting my family, my elderly Elderly family, extended family members. So Asa left her father's house with her two adult children, Victoria and Christopher, and slept in the rental car for this period of time. Also, I want to share that when the Feds seized the home and the and the avalanche, they um, they told her to pack an overnight bag. And Asa didn't know how long she was going to be away from the house. She thought it was gonna be just a moment. And so she left her animals in the house. They trapped her animals and put them in a kill shelter.
0: She was just recently again, like trigger one. I just the animal lovers out there and me. That's just so heartbreaking on both ends, both for Asa and her family and the animals. These are innocent bystanders. The The adult children
1: are living normal lives, and then one day they the feds knock on the door and say. Everything you know about your life is a lie. I just want people to keep that in mind. Imagine you get a knock on the door and it's the Fed saying, your husband, your partner is a suspected serial killer and we're going to seize your house immediately right now, pack an overnight bag. You, Your mind is racing. You don't know, up or down. It's so bewildering and so blindsiding. So then what happens is... Um, this search of the house is not 24 hours, 48 hours. It's days. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll look it up. I don't know exactly, but I want to say it was 12 to 14 days. I mean, there was an exorbitant amount of things in the home that they had to go through. Asa came back to her, with her adult children to find um, all of the mattresses are gone. That She has nothing to sleep on. Her daughter sleeps on a beanbag. Her son sleeps near on the dog bed um in in his room, the doors are all missing. The doors are custom height, by the way, for Rex Human because he's so tall he had it custom made. Um, the bathtub has huge chunks sawed out. The kitchen countertop is um there's a butcher block countertop, and that's cut out. Like someone just went in your imagine someone just went in your kitchen and sawed a big square out of it, yeah. I can't even imagine. I mean and, and, these these I mean, I want to make this clear. They're doing their job. Yeah. The feds were doing their job. They're seizing evidence. Okay, I got that. But um I want to put respect to, to the family. Your your home is is now potentially a crime scene, or they're suspecting has evidence in it. So that's another. You know, mind mm-hmm. f. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and so when I was in her home, I, I I asked to use the restroom, and it's the only restroom in the house. And they had a little sheet that was with a a screw, you know, like to put it up the and for privacy. Gone. Yeah, they they couldn't take the pipes are gone, the P traps are gone. Well, they, of course they took it because they're like looking for evidence DNA everywhere, maybe, DNA or, evidence. Yeah, yeah. um. I went in the basement, I saw the vault that everybody's talking about, and it's not a soundproof room. It's a very large room, but it's – I say it's not soundproof because if you soundproof something, you put um, a sound barrier at the ceiling, and it, it was just open
0: um, beams. Yeah. yeah. Like the walls, I think you described, like don't go all the way up.
1: Yeah. So there's a gap. Yeah, and there's wood tall. paneling Inside. Yeah, it's not soundproof. It's. Yeah, I know I had read somewhere that an interior decorator or designer had gone in the house and he had forbid her to go into this vaulted room. Well, the vaulted room carried all of the guns and it was like a bank door, a big, huge bank vault door. And um one could easily surmise that it was gun safety for the guns. There was no mattress in there. Well, obviously everything was taken. So I'm not going to speculate that any. Type of sex torture happened in that room because you could easily debunk that with a non sinister type
0: of. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, room wasn't yeah. soundproof. So if that happened, it would have had to have happened when he's in the house alone. But like, we and just don't no have any evidence. Also, like, we don't, we're also, not going to speculate on and sensationalize
1: right that's what hurts families too is yeah when innocent things are made to be mistaken for creepier things like that's what makes it for the family to believe too that um these these allegations are true when there's a lot of
0: you know untruth out there. Right. Uh, That they're hearing in the media and then they're wondering, is this true? Is it not? But a lot of it's not really even been substantiated yet. And um, I have to ask you, like, are there, you talk about the media and you talk about, like, everybody has all these questions. I already know what my immediate questions are, but like, are there questions that are problematic that that the media and people ask the victims that really should just not be asked? Yeah, we should not say how did she not know or she
1: should have she she knew to make that accusation is really damning because if, if you look and, and the reason why the question I have a problem with the question is that we need to stay focused on the alleged killer Rex mm-hmm. Hurman. and we need to look at what. Makes a person live a double life. Like what makes someone operate? You have to just put natural human behavior into play here, and then you'll easily answer this yourself. Yeah, if you you could answer this yourself, adult children, if they saw blood, if they saw anything uh, traumatizing like that, they ask would ask questions. They would ask questions, and yeah. they would share and speak to people about yes. it. Yes, Um the the wife, she has nothing to gain with women being murdered. Um, it's in the context of history with violent offenders, they've all lived double lives. And if you've ever been cheated on,
0: you would know what that's like. They hide it. So they don't have to answer for it all the time. And like, If you were cheated on, and me as your friend, and I'm like, well, how the hell do you not know? I mean, come on, it—you don't know because they don't want you to know. Trusted my husband went to work. He said he went to work. He went to work. He went to work. So So it was awesome. Thing. She,
1: unless you have any cause to question, but it's from what I've observed, I think if you know, I think Rex led led a double life. Um, Whether he was a serial killer that is to be proven in court, you know, I'm, he's alleged serial killer, but he, did he live a double life with sleeping with prostitutes? He did. He had a, he had a Tinder profile with the name Andy, not even his real name. He had a, another email account. He had burner phones. He was not, if, if people just heard the evidence, which it's been reported in the media, all this evidence, then why are we
0: asking that question? It, it It makes sense that they wouldn't know. he He wants to continue doing what he's doing because he gets some sort of satisfaction from it. And the only way he can keep doing what he's doing is if he keeps it from everybody, including his family. So it is and bullshit I'm, to just assume because I think you said earlier when you and I were talking this morning, you said to ask me like your father was arrested for serious crimes. For somebody to ask you, how could you not know? That's them assuming that you were complicit yeah. in his crime, accusing me, which is of being absurd. A part of it, it's yeah. absurd. So it's I very appreciate damning. you saying that, yeah. and I think it needs to be said. And I think you probably speak for many uh, family members of killers and perpetrators of other serial uh, serious crimes.
1: Yeah, they would all agree with me because, I mean, we're innocent bystanders. We're actually crime victims. You know, yeah. As oh, well. you're absolutely
0: so, you're absolutely
1: victims. Yeah. But I wanted to say I ended up deciding to do a GoFundMe when a, a Daily Mail reporter uh, named Ruth asked Asa, would a GoFundMe be helpful? And she said yes. So that to me was the consent because I said earlier I needed the blessing of Asa. Awesome. Right. So then I created the GoFundMe. I've never created one before. And I want to say I was really happily surprised that people saw her as a crime victim and saw her innocence. She had an alibi and they started contributing funds and the money. Um, and what I said in the GoFundMe and is true is that first also didn't have a bank account. Um, and so this was, she started a bank account so she could receive these emergency funds for her. The funds are going to provide a rental car because the avalanche is not coming back uh, for a very long time, if ever. And, uh, she needs temporary housing if she wants to get out of the house while they repair it. Um, I have heard from a, a criminologist that I've worked with that sometimes homeowner's insurance will pay for the repairs right. of, of an investigation like that. Yeah. If it's damaged, Hopefully, but yeah, hopefully. Um, and also it is going to provide food. And if she wants to get away he gives us the money to get
0: away. And she's trying to get a divorce. Yes. As well. Well,
1: and I want to say that none of the money is going towards her divorce lawyer or any of the any of the legal fees to divorce Rex. But she did she did file for a divorce immediately. And I think that's what helped people understand that um she's
0: understanding the charges. Yeah, it, that speaks volumes. Yeah. yeah, it says a lot. So I appreciate you sharing your insight. And I know that you actually have a lot more insight on Asa and her family and their family home, but out of respect for Asa and her family, she needs to be allowed the opportunity to tell her own story in her own words. So there are certain things that you're not going to say as you shouldn't.
1: Right. But I do want to say that um, the GoFundMe is live. And if you'd like to share the money you would spend on a starbucks coffee today and deposit some money it is being you know it is helping her for necessary basic needs she is not wealthy she has she up until the point of the gofundme going into her bank account she had no access to money in any way the gifts from strangers of gift cards were able to give her food um so just you know know that and also When it comes to the families of the other victims, they, I am hoping for justice and I'm, I'm also supporting them in telling their stories here.
0: and give With you more background yeah. uh, that I don't think, like you said, we're going to learn everything about Rex Hewerman, but um, I, I think that you and I are not done talking about this case. Given Obviously, your, like, wow, we've we really like Yeah, gone this long. one a long time. This is a very complex and longstanding case, but I echo your sentiments and I absolutely for all victims being the women who lost their lives and the man and the baby, um, I want justice for them and their families, and they absolutely deserve it. It does not matter what you do for a living. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. You're human. And I want Asa and her children to have some peace, to feel safe and secure, and and be able to move forward. I don't know if you ever move on, but you move forward Mm -hmm. from this. And I think that what you're doing is amazing. And I think that... The fact that the GoFundMe has raised, I believe, over $50,000 the last time I looked at it. Yeah, I haven't Don't looked put me at on it on that. Other people feel the same way. So, um, also,
1: I want to share that I do share all the positive comments. That's what I love is when people make a donation, people have been making a comment of support and they are being shared with Asa and the family. Great. And that is incredible. I imagine mean, that's even just
0: a little or maybe a large um comfort.
1: Yeah, it's going to help her heal faster to sure. know that she is embraced. And um you know, she is right now in my opinion a living victim and sadly the other victims are not alive. And so all we can provide is justice for the deceased murdered victims. And hence, why I created the GoFundMe for the living victims mm-hmm. that need resources now to keep going. And um, it also, when when something like this happens, and I want to be transparent, when something like this happens, a high profile case, when you're destitute and you need money, a lot of times people have to sell their story. So this That's affords a her to not have to sell her story. That's a really because good point. that precious puts pressure on her to um speak before she's ready. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and like a lot of news agencies obviously don't pay for stories, but there's going that there are some outlets that will pay. And
0: so let's just say we're both excited to uh talk to Dr. Michelle Ward. She is a criminal psychologist with a lot of experience in this very topic that we're talking about. She will be part two of this or part three. I don't know how many parts. And you and I, I think we'll come back on at some point when you, when you're able to share more without being disrespectful to yeah, They've you know, the family, they've got to share first, but I appreciate you being here with me as always. And this was very insightful, heartbreaking. Um, but I think more on it later. Yeah, we, there's so much more to share. I have a, a lot more
1: to share that, I I can share. And then um, also I'm looking forward to Dr. Michelle Ward because we have Five questions for her. Would you rather?s That we yeah. on the way here to the studio, Jamie and I had a good chuckle coming up with <laughs> what are the questions we want to do as an icebreaker for Doctor uh, Michelle Ward, this wore... badass,
0: beautiful PhD, having Barbie like, doll. Yeah. yeah, But we've got a few uh, would you rather questions because we feel like we want to break the ice. This was a very dark. I was. We need some levity. We, we need a little levity. bit of levity, <laughs> but we are going to get her insight on this case and other uh, cases and how like not it, so. to raise a serial killer. That's right. Oh, you just plugged uh, Dr. <laughs> Michelle Ward's podcast. Yay! All right, you guys, we'll see you back soon. We're not done talking about this case, but um, thanks for joining us and Melissa. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, lie detectors, leave a five-star rating and drop your favorite lipstick in the review section because we lie detectors don't gatekeep
1: and follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Lipstick and Lies if you want to see behind the scenes and clips of us recording each episode and be a part of the lie detector
0: community. Executive producers of Lipstick and Lies are Melissa Moore, myself, Jamie Rice, and Sim Sarna. The podcast is co-produced by Cloud 10 Media. Subscribe to Lipstick and Lies so you don't miss an episode. We all know that crime is usually a good old boys club, but sometimes the truth lies behind lipstick.